Good morning. How are we doing today? Certainly a better day today than it was last Sunday at this time, right? Yeah, but it's always good to be gathered together to lift up the name of the Lord. Uh, before we get into the text, um, just uh, want to take a moment and share a thank you to uh, Tim George. So if you're sitting here this morning and you're comfortable and not... <sighs> Tim, over a long period of time this winter, uh, spent a lot of hours here um, just um, upgrading the air conditioning, putting new units in. So Tim, thank you so much for your time and all the effort you put into that. We sure appreciate it. So, yeah. And he... He had help. He had a lot of help, um, but I'm sh- and I'm sure he's super happy that I'm saying thank you from up here. But uh, we just wanted to share our appreciation for all of your hard work. If you have your Bibles, turn to Second Samuel seven. Uh, we're going to continue our look into King David's life, and we can call him King now because he is on the throne in Israel. We're going to look at an interesting passage. Um, it's interesting because by itself, the information in second Samuel seven could form its own theological sermon, uh, because of the information that is connected to it. Uh, we're going to touch on that, but we're going to spend most of our time this morning looking at a situation surrounding it that focused on David himself and, and what that means for us. Um, just a, as a matter of confession, uh, for the first time in five or six years, I can tell you that I am a Pittsburgh Pirates fan. <laughs> I know, I know, that's hard for some of you to take this morning. Um, but here we are in early May, and the Pirates are still relevant in Major League Baseball. Now, I wrote this three or four days ago. Uh, Since then, they are now on a six-game losing streak, so I might be editing on the fly. Um, But hey, if you've been following news, not just baseball news in general, but if you're you're someone that tunes in to like um, the, the daily talk shows or you listen to talk radio or anything like that, you know about 10 days ago, the Pittsburgh Pirates called up a player named Drew Maggi who was in their double-A system. He was playing out of Altoona. And he made national news because of what was going on in his life. Uh, Drew Maggi uh, was a 15th-round selection in the 2010 MLB draft. And he played his first Major League Baseball game just 10 days ago. He played 1,155 games in the minor leagues before he played, got his first major league at bat. A couple years ago, he was on the Twins, and they called him up during the COVID-shortened year where they, there was like no sta- uh, people in the stands. He was called up to the team, but he never got an at bat, so he was never considered an official major league baseball player. And so Drew Maggi uh, got called up, and they weren't sure how long. His first game, in his first at bat, he struck out. And he called it the greatest strikeout he ever had. So his, his story made national news. 
Uh, he was on talk radio. He was on podcasts. Uh, people were just kind of gravitating towards his story. This never give up, chase your dream, follow, you know, what's in front of you. And, and, and all the obstacles can just be tackled if you have grit and determination. And we gravitate towards stories like this. Maggi kept his dream alive to make it to the big leagues. He played, I think, four games with the Pirates, four or five games with the Pirates. Last Sunday, in fact, or last Saturday night, in fact, uh, the Pirates were playing in Washington, D.C. against the Nationals, and he got his first hit and his first RBI. And then on Sunday, he was being optioned back to the A Altoona team. But we, this is the stuff that, that movies are made of, right? Like if you've seen Rudy, you know the story of Rudy, right? He wouldn't give up, and he finally made it on the field for Notre Dame football. Or the, the movie The Rookie with uh, Dennis Quaid. He was this, when I say older guy, like I'm older than he was when he, he was, in, that's strange to me. But he was this older gentleman that could still throw a fastball. He was coaching his uh, a high school baseball team, and his team encouraged them to try out. And he actually made it to the Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, this is like 20 years ago. We like these stories. We pay money to watch these stories. We're encouraged by them. And one of the reasons I believe we enjoy this kind of feel-good story is because they are rare. They're rare. If life was full of all of these wonderful way-to-go moments, they wouldn't be that amazing, and we wouldn't take the time to go and see them and watch them and be drawn in by what's going on. We know more examples of broken dreams and dead ends than positive ones. Now, this might be a difficult task for some of you, not because it has never happened, but it might be frustrating for you. It might even be painful. But I want you to take a moment and I want you to think for yourself of a dream that you had that didn't pan out. Maybe it was a plan that you prayed about. Maybe it was something that you committed to the Lord. And it still didn't happen. Maybe it was a career dream, a goal for your personal life, or something for your family. And it hasn't worked out. So just take a moment and think about a time when something didn't work out for you that you had hoped for. I should have had like some like game show music playing in the background while people are taking their time. So just take a minute and do that. We're going to sit awkwardly silent for a second. So I think it's important you, you think about this. Broken dreams have a way of causing us to dream less. And you think, well, I tried that when I was young. I had this big dream that I was going to do this great thing and then it doesn't happen. And then you think, why should I dream? You know, what, what's the point? They don't work out. It's a difficult thing to hear from the Lord. That's not my plan for you. 
even when you pray about it, even when you think it's a godly dream or vision for your life, even if it's when you want to lift up his name with what you're pursuing. Sometimes God is going to say, that's not my plan. Apparently this isn't working today. There you go. But what if God says no only to provide a better dream? What if his no brings us closer to him to trust his grace? What if when we're thinking about how we want to order our lives and make our plans and have all of these great and wonderful things happen and God says no, we just say, okay, Lord, what's next? Because I think sometimes we get overwhelmed with the no's. We get buried in the disappointment. We get frustrated that things are not working out the way that we had hoped. And I, see, I think sometimes we even blame God. Say, God, why won't you let this happen? God, your word says you will give me the desires of my heart. Why isn't this thing working out? And I think from time to time, we all have to wrestle with that. This morning, as we look into David's life, we see a dream that David had for only God to say no to him. God said no. But in that no, God assures him that there is something far better to look forward to. There's something far better. And I hope that you can see in your life and, and maybe the no's. And, and, you know, we call the no's sometimes closed doors, right? We use that vocabulary. God, we're going to pray that doors are opened and stay open. Or God, that if it's clear from you that they're, they're, it's a no, then you would close the door. That even in the closed door, God is still with us. And God is still for us. And this is what we find in Second Samuel 7. Let me read to you the ver first seven verses of this passage. Now it came about when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. So let me just pause here and we'll, we'll kind of talk about what's going on. Verse 1 indicates that this moment in David's life or around these events focuses on a time when King David lived in his house and he had been given rest on every side from all of his enemies. And so this is a period of time when life had slowed down for the king. Things had been pretty crazy for the king um, throughout his leadership because he was in the process of reconciling the people of Israel together as one people and, and to give them rest from the enemies that were around them, whether they were the Philistines or the Canaanites or all of the, the nations that Israel really had been at war with since they entered the land. And we had talked about last week in preparation of David bringing the ark that David went out to battle two times against the Philistines and God gave him the victory. And so then after that, he brought the ark, which was the symbol of the presence of God into Jerusalem, his city. 
And David wants to bring the presence of God into the city where he is going to lead. Not just so David could have the assurance that God is with him, but that the ark would be in a place that would be central to the lives of the nation of Israel. And he was trying to unify the people spiritually. And here it says that he had rest. Now, what's strange about this in chapter 7 is is it says that he had rest, but chapter 8 talks about more war with the Philistines. And so was this just a moment of rest or was this a longer period of rest? And, and what I think, and this is where a lot of conservative commentators agree, that the events of chapter 7 happened later on in David's rule and reign. That there was a time when he had subdued all of the enemies and that the nation of Israel was at rest under his leadership. But the writer of 2 Samuel includes these events right after chapter 6, not in a chronological way, but in a theological way to show that David is bringing everything into order in the nation of Israel under his leadership. And so at a season, at a point when David is in his house, he's not out to war. He's not out fighting battles. He's at rest from all of his enemies on every side. That he has a dream. He has something he wants to do. And we read in verse 2 that the king said to Nathan the prophet. Now Nathan is going to be a, a person that is going to factor into the story of Second Samuel in a major way as the story of David's life unfolds. But this is the first mention of Nathan in Scripture. Nathan was a prophet, much like Samuel was a prophet. And Nathan is going to be a critical figure in David's life. And he really was that person that spoke to David on behalf, on behalf of God and was the, the ministering prophet for this king. Much like Samuel was for Saul until Saul went off the rails and then Saul's like, I'm, or Samuel's like, I'm done with you. If you're going to forsake the Lord, I cannot continue to minister to you. And so Nathan and David are having this conversation. The king said to Nathan, see, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. David's in his house thinking, man, I got it made. Uh, Look at this beautiful building that was put together. And here is God's ark, the ark of God. If you remember from last week, it was that golden piece of furniture that symbolized God's presence with his people. And it is in a temple I mean, not a temple, a a tabernacle, a, a tent. It's in this, you know, temporary house. I have walls. It has curtains. And in David's mind, if he's setting up his throne, it doesn't make sense to him that the ark of God is resting in a tent while he is living in a palace. And so he shares his dream with Nathan. What does Nathan say in verse three? He says to the king, go do all that is in your mind for the Lord is with you. That's what a friend does, right? You have a dream, you share that dream and it's an honorable dream. It's a good dream. David wants to build a permanent house for the Ark of the Covenant. 
so that God can be with his people in a more permanent way. He shares it with Nathan the prophet. That's a good thing to do, to go to the person that you know is close to God and say, okay, this is what is going on in my heart. This is what I desire to do. What does his friend say? Go do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. Nathan is speaking as a spiritual advisor here. He's speaking as someone, like much like as a pastor, people come to me and say, Pastor, I got these decisions to make. I got these choices before me. What should I do? I hear the choices. And, you know, some of them are very honorable. And no one's coming to me and saying they want to do a nefarious thing. But they're coming to me and they're saying, this is what I want to do. And what do you think? And I hear and I think, well, that's a good thing. Sure. Go pursue God in that. And watch him bless. He's speaking as an advisor, as as a counselor, as an encouragement. David has noble intentions. I mean, even like moving the ark in chapter 6, he had noble intentions. He wanted to bring the ark closer to him. And we know that it didn't go well. Uzzah, for all of time, is... um, memorialized as the person that touched the ark and God's anger burned and he died. So Nathan says, go for it. Follow your heart. And then we read in verses four and following this. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and say to my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Whenever I've gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So, the first thing we need to notice, the first thing that we need to see is that it's often in these pauses of life, in the rest of life, right? David was in a a place of rest. That it's in the pauses of life when there is rest that we have time to dream dreams, You know, in the hustle and bustle of life, when we're busy about our days and we're running from one thing to the next, we don't often have time to slow down and and to think, okay, what is ahead of me? Where am I going? What am I going to do with my life? What will I be pursuing? But when we have those moments of rest, we can stop and just pause for a minute and think, okay. Where's my life headed? What do I want to accomplish? And we're not talking about the dreams like, you know, every little boy wants to be a major league baseball player kind of dream. Like I had that dream. Obviously, it didn't work out. And I'm not upset about that. What we see, though, is that David's desire was not God's dream for him. 
Some plans may be good plans, but if they are not the Lord's plans, they will not prosper. We may have very good plans. Wow, we are like, we need the please silence all cell phones on the, some plans may be good plans, but if they are not the Lord's plans, they will not prosper. I've said this before, and I really believe this. Sometimes we're making decisions between two equally good things. And it's not like one is wrong and one is right. And, and we're just like, okay, it's obvious, right? Most of the time in life, we're, we're deciding between two equally good things. And that's where it can be difficult as we pray about it, as we seek wisdom from scripture and think, God, what is it that you want me to do? And, and sometimes we need to just take a step back and understand we're going to have good intentions at times, good desires, good plans for things. But if they're not what God wants for us to do, for us to continue to push forward in those things is foolishness because they're not going to prosper. We may do it and maybe for a short moment of time, it may go, go well, but they're not going to prosper. They're not going to last. They will not endure. <clears throat> so it didn't take very long for God to intervene. What does verse four say? Just a few hours later, David and Nathan have this conversation. David shares his heart. Nathan says, yeah, go for it. A few hours later, God speaks to Nathan. Nathan formally spoke from a place of wisdom, but it was from himself. Here, the Lord is speaking directly to Nathan and saying, Nathan, you need to go back to David and you need to tell him no. In verses 5 and 6, now God is speaking. And when God speaks, we better listen, right? I mean, Nathan had something on behalf of the Lord to say. Go and say to my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. So in this no, God is basically saying three things to David. Three things of why his answer is no to David's dream of building a house for the ark. The first thing is that there is not a pressing need to build a house because the ark has been in a tent from the beginning. There's no pressing need. The ark has a place. It's in the tabernacle. It's been that way since God brought Israel out of Egypt. Even to the day that David was having this thought. Secondly, God says that he never gave a command to Israel to build a permanent home for the ark. He's like, listen, in all my journeys with you, when did I ever say to the sons of Israel, this is what I want you to do with the Ark of the Covenant? And thirdly, and this is found in a parallel passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, 
We read this. David said to Solomon, my son, I have intended to build a house to the name of the Lord, my God. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. So in the parallel passage, David gained some insight. And basically, because he was a man of war, God was saying, you're not the right person to build a permanent house from the Ark of the Presence. And so three ways God says to him, nope, nope, and nope. Now, here's the thing. God's no to David's plan or dream was not a disciplinary action, nor was it God rejecting David. David is still a man after God's own heart. God was simply saying no because the sovereign Lord had greater plans for David. Maybe you need to just rest in that sentence for a minute. That God's no in your life is not because he's out to get you and to make your life miserable or to derail your plans. That God's no is simply because he has greater plans for you. And now we just need to wait where he's going to lead and guide. As we live our lives for the Lord... We're going to seek God's blessing for our plans. And sometimes his no is not because he's disciplining us, but because he has a greater path that we haven't considered. Second Chronicles chapter six helps us understand this. Now, it was in the heart of my father. This is Solomon speaking his son that we haven't even met yet in his life. Solomon says, now it was in the heart of my father, David, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father, David, because it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Do you see that? God said no to David, but God wasn't upset that that was David's desire. God was still looking at David and saying, hey, that's a noble thing, David. Good job. But my answer is still no. And so God might, you know, encourage you with the plans and dreams that you have. But his no doesn't mean that he's like, hey, that was terrible. Stop doing that. I'm upset with you. I mean, can you imagine David hearing these words from Nathan just hours before? Nathan's like, go for it. Now... Nathan is saying, David, God's saying no to you. What we see here in this incident that is entirely helpful for us is that the point is not that David was wrong, but that he, that David accepted God's no, and he continued to trust in God's plan. David accepted God's no. There's no pity party. There's no frustration. There's no stomping off and shutting the the door of his house and saying, hmm, if God's going to say no, I'm not going to pray to him today. There's no pouting. David heard the no and said, okay, Lord, what do you have next? And oh, did God have something next for him? 
Look at verses 8 through 17. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you whenever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from you, and I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. God's no for a house became a major redirection in David's life. God's no for one thing followed with God's yes for something far greater. God was speaking to this man who, as verse indicate, verse eight indicates, was at one point a minuscule shepherd. Right. As a young boy, he's just out taking care of sheep in the middle of nowhere, Bethlehem. And God came to him and said, David, I'm going to choose you to be the next king. And and God didn't give David the whole plan from the very beginning. He didn't say, okay, David, I'm going to choose you at this age. You're going to do this for the next 14 years of your life. You're going to eventually assume the throne. All of these great things are going to happen. And this is what I'm going to do in the future through you. God chose David as a man after his own heart. And God said, I'm going to be with you. And oh, along the way, God kept revealing pieces and portions of his grand plan for David's life. And this is where he kind of takes the lid off of it and says, okay, David, let me just reveal it to you. This is what I'm promising to do. God is comforting David. Right. As a, as a friend of David, God is saying, listen, I know you're hearing no right now and you might be frustrated in your desires. But David, I have a better plan for you, a greater story. In verses 10 and 11, God begins to reveal the plan. He says he's been working in Israel and there's going to be there is going to come a day when they will be undisturbed and at rest. The nation of Israel will be undisturbed and at rest in the land. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. God makes a unilateral promise. Like God is saying, God, David, I'm going to do this for you. This is what I'm doing on your behalf. Now, theologians label this promise the Davidic covenant. 
And it's one of the major covenants in all of Scripture. Much like the promise God made to Abraham in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. What did God say to Abraham? Well, at the time, his name was Abram. But he says, Abraham, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you a great name. I'm going to bless the descendants of the earth. And you will have descendants that will outnumber the stars of the sky and the sands on the seashore. He gave him a land to live in, a seed of descendants, and caused them to be a blessing to every person that will ever live on this earth. When God makes promises, I hope you're looking at me right now. When God makes promises, he keeps those promises. They don't change. Now, before we look at the details of this promise, I just want you to note a bit of the irony in what's going on in 2 Samuel 7. It, it, It reveals itself to us in verse 11. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. God is speaking to David. How did the passage start? It started with David wanting to make a house for God. God says no, and God says to David, David, you want to make me a house? I'm going to make you a house. Like he, He's just like, you want to do that? I'm going to do something for you. Now, the details of this promise that God makes are found in verses 12 through 16. Verse 12 indicates that a descendant will rise up and his kingdom will be established. This established kingdom will be, as verse 13 indicates, forever. Verse 14 indicates this son, when he commits iniquity, will be corrected and God's loving kindness will not depart from him. Now, this points to the men that will follow David. And it began with Solomon, his son. And beginning with Solomon and then through the future of Israel's existence in the Old Testament, at least through the time when they were kicked out of the land, God was working through the kings that would come through David's line. And we know that when the kings messed up and committed iniquity, what would God do? He would correct them. He would discipline them. When they disobeyed, God would do what was needed, but he would not depart from this line. In verses 16 and 17, we read, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, the last time I checked, Israel does not have a king today. They have a prime minister. But there isn't a king in Israel today. If you jump on an airplane and fly to Israel today, there is no king in Israel. So, who or what is this referring to? Well, thank you. I didn't even have to solicit that. Israel does have a king today. And his name is Jesus. This promise made to David finds its ultimate fulfillment in a baby that was born in a stable in Bethlehem. Roughly 1,000 years after the promise was given. The Davidic covenant, this promise that God makes, is folded into the Abrahamic covenant of God's larger 
promise to Abraham and his descendants. And it's these two covenants that Matthew, the writer of the gospel, holds on to to show his readers that this baby that is born fulfills God's promise to David and God's promise to Abraham. We read this in Matthew 1.1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's where Matthew starts. He doesn't start with Adam. That's where Luke starts his genealogy. Here, Matthew starts with Abraham. And it all goes back to that promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12. And then a few verses later in verse 6, we read, Jesse was the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. And Matthew takes us through this genealogy from Abraham and he brings us through David. And he brings us through to David to show us that Jesus is the ultimate promise that was given in 2 Samuel 7. It is his throne. He is the one that will reign forever. Today, Jesus, truly the King of kings and the Lord of lords, is the only one that can satisfy the ultimate fulfillment of both of those promises. Now, one day, unknown to us, Jesus will return and he will set up his 1000 year kingdom on the earth in the land that God had promised. He will gather Israel to himself. They will enter into this 1000 year kingdom. And they will enjoy life with their king. At the end of that thousand years, God says it's time to make everything new. And he sets up his forever kingdom. And we get to, with all of believing Israel, enjoy that kingdom. Now, verses 18 through 29, I'm not even going to read them, but you can on your own, concludes with the only right response that David could make as a result of hearing such great and marvelous things. He praises God. He gives God all the honor and glory for what God is promising. He's thankful. He offers worship to the Lord. David's initial no did not frustrate his disposition before the Lord. Read this prayer on your own and you will see his humbleness, his understanding, and the reality that he was in the presence of God Almighty. David considered himself insignificant. But David also understood that his future was secure because the Lord had promised to secure his future. And so as we wrap up this morning, I think it's important to realize that God's ways are certainly higher than ours. God is often going to say no to you. Sometimes God is not going to say anything at all. And you might be in a season of just, okay, God, what are you saying? But in those moments, are we going to trust him that no matter what, we're going to praise him? Because he is certainly good in all that he has done. I pray that you can look back at all the broken dreams and closed doors and continue to sing the sure praises of our great God because he has continued to bless in your life. 
And just so you know that I'm not speaking from a merely theoretical experience, you know, as a student of Scripture, reading the account of David and saying, okay, that was true for David. I I want you to understand uh, a season of my life where God said no to me. In in the fall of 2008, my wife and I were serving in western Pennsylvania, and we felt like our time in in that area that we were serving was coming to a close. And so I had applied for a position uh, as a senior pastor for a church in West Virginia. And it was the first time I had ever done something like that. And, it was, you know, they had written back to me and said, hey, here, you know, can you send us more information? I sent more information. You know, I was kind of excited about the whole experience and thinking, OK, maybe this is where God is leading us and directing us. I didn't hear a peep for months. And so, you know, we still were feeling like our time where we were was coming to a close. And so I contacted our district rep with the mission organization that we were serving with. And I said, you know, I think, you know, we're coming to a close here. And he he understood. And we I mean, we talked and prayed about that for a while. And and so they offered to us in early winter uh, the opportunity to go to a new field with our mission outside of Binghamton, New York. And so. We agreed to go. We agreed to go, and it was like the next week the church in West Virginia said, hey, we want to talk to you about all the information that you sent. Are you still willing to have this conversation? And I was like, well, I've already given my yes to the mission organization that I was working with, so that's where we're going to be. And I said no to their pursuit. And then we moved to New York for two and a half years, and it was the strangest two and a half years that we've had in ministry, as God was teaching us a lot of things about ourselves in the midst of ministry. We, we served in a, a, a great area where people cared about us, but it was a very isolated and closed off area. I mean, it was like middle of nowhere. We had more bear than we had neighbors. Um, we were there for two and a half years. And it was in the spring of 2011 that we were feeling like God was moving us away from the ministry that we were involved with altogether into a new chapter of ministry. And that's when I found out about this church looking for a senior pastor, a pastor. And in the spring of 2011, we began the journey of pursuing um, a relationship with all of you. And in that process, I came to find out that number one, if I was in West Virginia, I wouldn't be here today. Number two, if I would have applied for the position of this church two and a half years before, I would not have been considered because I didn't have 10 years of experience at that time. So for those two and a half years, we came to you know, fulfill certain criteria of what was suggested. And you're stuck with me. (laughs) Um, But in in all honesty, in the midst of all of those transitions and all of that waiting and all of those closed doors and all of those where God was saying no to something that I was sure that was a yes, God used that as a season in my life to remind me of his goodness and faithfulness. That no matter what the plans are before us, his plan for me does not change. And his goodness towards me does not change. 
And so I want to encourage you with that because some of you have very, very clearly faced broken dreams and shattered futures. And it might be because someone that you knew that and loved you left. Or they passed away. Or a child that you love is a prodigal right now. Or a job that you were hoping for, you were passed over for someone else. Or your plans for retirement tanked when the economy tanked. I get it. Life doesn't always work out the way that we want it to. But God is faithful. And He will not lose hold of you. And where He leads and guides and directs in your life, it may seem mysterious in that moment, but the sovereign Lord who sits on His throne is comfortably holding your life in His hands. So don't lose sight of that. Let's pray.